please take your Bibles and open to 2 Samuel. For those of you that are on social media, I gave you all homework. Now, you were to read two chapters of this so you could be prepared because your pastor has bitten off more than he can chew. So either we're going to move quickly or we're going to be here to 1 o'clock. So, get your Bibles, get to turning. We have to move quickly as we look at um, a sermon I've entitled, Politics and Power. Now, we're back in the life of David, and this morning we're going to see the continued conflict between Israel and Judah as played out between Abner, who's Ishbosheth's general, who is Saul's son, and Joab, who is David's general. David has been anointed king in Judah, and Abner took Ishbosheth and put him as king over the rest of Israel in the north in a place called Mahanaim. Now, we're going to see how Abner's choice to defy the will of God for Israel is going to cause incredible problems for everyone. And this will also show us how a man's desire for power, position, and prominence often, if not always, run contrary to God's purposes. It is part of our sinful human nature to seek after those things, to seek after power, to seek after position, and then use them for our own privileges and preferences. Again, I've titled this sermon, Politics and Power, because this section of 2 Samuel is filled with both. Now, I know that many of you in this room have a very sour view of politics, and you don't ever want to speak of it, but politics, let me remind you, is simply the process of forming and enacting policies in an organized society. Now, as defined that way, politics isn't inherently sinful. Amen? Okay. But that's, t- not, that's not typically how we think of politics. We tend to think of politics as the use of underhanded and unsavory methods to obtain power at all costs. It is that kind of politics where the ends justify the means that is rightfully repulsive or should be in an organized society. For believers, we should desire the first model and rightfully decry the second. And this is why, for the believer, we recognize the need for good government and good policies. And that is good politics. At the same time, We of all people on earth should recognize the dangers inherent in our sinful natures. We we should know that. We should recognize that because of human sinfulness, we will never be able to usher in God's kingdom on earth through political or through social or through military means. And the church has tried all of those and failed miserably for 2,000 years. It's true. Just read history. God's kingdom is something that only God's king can bring about. Only Jesus can do that. That's the way. And it will not happen until Christ returns. So, our section today, as we look at this in 2 Samuel, isn't really about David. And it's not even really about Ishbosheth. This section is basically the Abner saga that began with Abner's choice to anoint Ishbosheth king instead of David. This is a very politically entangled story. Abner is the leader of the military of Israel, and as such, he really has all of the power 
once Saul is dead. He is acting as the de facto ruler in Israel. So his decisions are weighed and measured and calculated. And this section is going to outline three huge failures of Abner. Three huge failures. The writer of 2 Samuel isn't going to give us a lot of theological commentary, but instead he allows the reader to make their own judgments about what is happening. Now this is an incredible story. If you read it, this is a fascinating story. Like The Princess Bride, one of my favorite movies, and should be one of yours, or you're not American. The Princess Bride has plot twists and sword fights and political coup and murder and revenge. There's just no kissing, unless you want to count the metaphorical kind that we use our rear ends for. There's some of that. Now, so let me tell you the three failures up front, then I'll read the most important verses of the whole section, and we'll go from there. So here are the three failures of Abner. Here they are. This is the summary. First, we're going to see that Abner initiates a conflict with Judah, and he fails. Second, Abner is going to plot against Ishbosheth, the very king he anointed, and fail. And then Abner is going to seek a resolution with David, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and he's going to fail. So if you're in 2 Samuel, look at chapter 3, and this is all we're going to read at the beginning, and then we're going to go through the text as we get there. Look at verses 3, 9 through 10. This is, these, this, is, this is Abner's very own words. Look what Abner says, verses 9 and 10. God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. That's crazy coming from the mouth of Abner, the very guy who's caused this problem. But he knows from the very beginning what the issue is. Now, here we go. Let's look at three movements of our text, and we got to go fast. Notice that our text begins back in chapter 2, verses 12 through 32, with resisting God's kingdom. Abner begins this whole saga by resisting God's kingdom. He resisted it first by anointing Ishbosheth, and now he resists it in a conflict an open conflict with David. Now, there are four incredible scenes here which would make an incredible movie. So let me give you the scenes. The first scene is the pool of Gibeon. Look at verses 12 through 17. Here we go. It says, Abner, the son of Ner, and servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met him at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down the one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number. Twelve for Benjamin, that's the tribe of Saul, and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David, all from Judah. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so that they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazirim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now here we go, this is scene one at the pool of Gibeon. Now geography doesn't lie. Abner is the aggressor in this entire exchange. He leaves 
Ishbosheth's capital and Mahanaim in the northeast near the Jabbok River, and he marches his men southwest across the Jordan River to within five miles of Jerusalem in what is most likely considered to be an open act of hostility against David's rule in Judah. David's men have always had good intel um, on, and the ability to monitor the movement of Saul's men. We saw that in 1 Samuel as they hunted David. That doesn't seem to have changed now that David is king in Judah. So Joab has time from his advanced scouts to mobilize a force, and they meet Abner's men at the large pool in Gibeon. Now as these two groups sit across from each other, put yourself there, two armies facing each other at the pool of Gibeon. It's, it's important to remember the recent events and circumstances involving these two groups staring at each other. Here's what you might not remember. David's men are fresh off of a victory where they have defeated the Amalekites that Saul was supposed to destroy way back in 1 Samuel. And Ishbosheth's men are reeling from their decisive defeat on Mount Gilboa where their king Saul and his sons were killed. The men of Judah are rejoicing. They're celebrating that they have a new king in Hebron, in David, according to the very promise that God had given them. And Saul's men, are, Saul's men have a king who was anointed by the general sitting with them at this pool who had decisively lost the battle. And there are more likely others among their company who had refused David's offer to come and join him. Now, this seems like a very a tense situation with a lot of men of action who are armed to the teeth, and the men of Judah are on edge because they haven't been given a reason why Abner and his men are here. Abner breaks the silence with the offer of a competition. Twelve men for Benjamin, twelve men for Judah, representative, by the way, of course, of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, whatever the competition was supposed to be or intended to be, Maybe they were supposed to play tag. Do you get that? That that was that. Do you get that was what they were trying to do? As you read the text, that hey, we're about to just play a big game of tag with our guys. Whatever, whatever they were supposed to do, it turned deadly in a hurry as the twenty-four men simultaneously killed each other. It's a crazy story, right? Look at verse sixteen. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side, so they all fell down together. This fight became known as the field of sword edges. Now, for those guys that might be in the military here today that have went through training like this, I, my former boss at one of my previous churches was an army ranger. He served in Desert Storm and in Bosnia and Kosovo. And our youth pastor at my other church, he wanted to wrestle him one day. And he's like, hey, let's wrestle let's have a competition. And my buddy, who was the trained army ranger, he looks at him and says, I don't wrestle. And my other buddy's like, why not? Are you scared of losing? Ha <laughs> ha, are you scared of losing? And he deadpan looks him in the eye and says, we're not trained to lose. That's what's happening here at this pool. You put 24 men armed to the teeth that are used to hand-to-hand -hand combat, they're not trained to lose in some competition. This becomes a very deadly time. So, it's from this point that we move to scene two. It moves from the battle to the chase on foot. Look at verses 18 through 23 as we keep moving quickly. It says, and, and the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. 
Now, Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. If you don't know, that's fast. And Asahel pursued Abner as he went and turned neither to the right nor to the left from following Abner. And Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to him, Chance number two, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out his back. And he fell there dead where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. The fierce battle ensues from this competition. Asahel, who is the brother of Joab and Abishai, all three had served in Saul's army. That's why, that's why Abner knows who they are. Asahel decides there's glory for him in the battle, especially if he can dispose of this instigator, Abner. Abner, though, is the grisly veteran warrior who has seen plenty of battles. You don't become general in, in Saul or David's army by being weak, or by being ineffective, or by dying easily in hand-to-hand combat. You're general because you know how to handle yourself. And so what happens? Abner knows that he can and will best Asahel in a, in a fight. And Abner also knows the outcome should Asahel not resent, resist, um, should not relent. So Abner has reasonable foresight here. Give him credit. He basically says something like this. If you don't stop chasing me, Asahel... And you don't turn and fight somebody you can actually beat. I will kill you. And your brothers will be angry. And I don't want them to be angry. And you shouldn't want to die. Guys, that's funny. Maybe. Unless you're the one that's about to die. But Abner is really telling him the truth, right? And it goes down just as Abner predicts. He stops on a dime, thrusts his spear clean through Asahel, kills him in one blow. It was so dramatic that the writer says that everybody stops fighting as they stare at Asahel's body. They can't believe it. Things go from bad to worse. On to scene 3, verses 24 through 28. It says, But Joab and Abishai, Asahel's brothers, pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammon, which lies on the Gib, on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves behind, together behind Abner and became one group, and they took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it, will it be before you tell your people to turn from their pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, and nor did they fight. So they retreated to the hill of Amma. Now, I don't take this this truce called here at this hill to be Joab agreeing with Abner, as though Abner has simply used diplomacy to end the battle and has convinced Joab of a better course of action. I think Joab here is referring back to the pool, and he's basically saying something like this, if you hadn't initiated this conflict by goading the men into competition, then if you hadn't opened your mouth earlier today and instigated this conflict, we wouldn't be here. This is your fault, Abner, but I'll blow the trumpet because we've already won, which is why you're on this hill and we've chased you all the way into the wilderness. 
Now look at the return home, verses 29. This is scene four, the return home, verses 29 through 32. It says, And Abner and his men went all throughout the night, uh, Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah, and they crossed the Jordan, marching the whole morning. They came to Mahanaim. And Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, they were missing from David's servants, 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. So here we're given the results of the battle. David, David's soldiers lost 20 men. If that counts the 12 who died in the competition, then they only lost 8 men in the ensuing battle. Abner suffered the loss of 360. This was a decisive victory for Judah, and it's a long march home for Abner. We're told that David's men uh, stop in Bethlehem on the way to bury Asahel. In case you didn't know this, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel are David's nephews. They're from the same family in Bethlehem. And we're given a scene from a movie as day breaks on them as they walk into Hebron. Not, not rejoicing, it seems, but mourning the loss of one of David's mightiest men. This is Abner resisting the kingdom by force. Second, manipulating God's kingdom. Look here at verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. It says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. The firstborn was Amnon um, the, of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of Mekah, the daughter of Talmah, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth, um, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithrim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rispa, the daughter of Ai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God, do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Now notice how the author describes the growing strength of David's kingdom and the waning and dwindling strength of Ishbosheth. David is getting given many sons, and he's winning many battles. And Abner is growing stronger, but in a diminished kingdom. But Abner loses favor with Ishbosheth over an issue concerning one of Saul's concubines. And Ishbosheth becomes terrified of Abner, even though he's king. So Abner, in a fit of rage, conveniently remembers God's promise to David that he's been openly rebelling against for some time now. So Abner knew all along from the time he poured oil on Ishbosheth's head that David was meant to be king. So what does Abner do? He plots a manipulative scheme that will, that will allow him to remain in a powerful position. Abner's move here, if you, don't, if you read closely, is completely out of necessity. 
This isn't a change of heart for Abner regarding David, but a calculation. Notice how the text describes his situation. It's crumbling and crumbling fast. So if Abner knows that Israel can't beat Judah on the battlefield and the writing is on the wall, he can't continue to resist God's kingdom militarily, then he's going to seek to manipulate the kingdom for his own purposes. Now, a bit of application for you here. Even as believers today, we face this temptation. All of us have a little bit of Abner in us. There are those who are part of the church only because of the social or connective benefits that it brings. It's not a principled commitment to Jesus. The Bible's filled with warnings against this. There are those that love money. There are those that are in love with the present world. There are those that just participate because of the social capital that it gives them. They're not contributors or providers of love, grace, mercy through Christ to the world. They're simply consumers. Don't be a consumer. That's my point to you here. Don't be one. It's foolish and sinful. It's like stealing scraps out of the king's garbage when he's invited you to sit at his table as a son and daughter. The benefits of actually knowing Christ are so much greater than trying to get worldly benefits out of the church. But it requires humility and repentance and surrendering of our ways and our plans, something that Abner and the average person is sometimes often not willing to do. So here Abner's manipulating the kingdom. And then finally, notice that there ends up with shame being brought on God's kingdom here with David. Look at verses 12 through 39. Got to move quickly. Look what happens to Abner. It says, Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me. And behold, my hand shall be with you and bring over all Israel to you. And David said, good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I will require of you. That is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Mashal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Now that's David's first wife that was taken from him by Saul. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me my wife, Mashal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baal-Hurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you've been seeking David as king over you. Now bring it about. For the Lord has promised David. It's funny how he knows this. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king. And then uh, and that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and, they, and he went in peace. Just then, the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Notice the repetition. 
Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. That's important. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and upon his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, um, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And the king David followed the bier. And they buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up a voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered as one falls before wicked, the wicked men you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then, then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me, and more also if I taste bread or say anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything the kid did pleased the people. So all the, king, so the, all the people in all Israel understood that day, here's what's important, that it had not been the king's will to put Abner to death, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I, will be gen and I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Now, this is an incredibly fast-moving narrative. Here are several things I want to point out as we close. Number one, first, David here proves to be a very savvy negotiator. As he demands his first bride back. Notice in the text that David doesn't ask Abner to do this. He sends messengers directly to Ishbosheth to have this done. So David reduces Abner from a would be power broker to simply a middleman. Now, again, Mashal was the daughter of Saul who was given to David for his success against the Philistines. Saul had used his own daughter, Mashal, as a pawn against David by taking her from David and giving her to another man named Paltiel. Now, this is a messy section of Scripture. And it seems that Paltiel and Mishal are simply caught in the middle. But this goes back to the choices that Saul made for both David and Mishal. With Mishal back, this would strengthen David's position with the house of Saul and certainly expand his influence to the northern tribes. Second. We're told three specific times in verses 21, 22, and 23 that David sends Abner away in peace. That means he's allowed to leave under security of the king. This is repeated so that you, the reader, can't miss the truth of David's intentions. David has extended the olive branch to Abner and offered him peace. Abner left David's presence with a security guarantee from the king himself. And this is why Abner... A trained man of war 
doesn't act suspicious at Joab's request to come meet him out in the back alley. I would be suspicious. The author is quick to point out in verse 26 that David had no idea what Joab was up to. So when Joab meets Abner, Abner expects the king's man to carry out the word of the king. This is what makes Joab's actions so detestable to David. It is treacherous. It is subverting the very rule of David as king. It is just as subversive as what Abner had done. Third, you cannot miss David's response to Joab's actions. Look, look at David's words in verse 28. I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord. This is not how David intends for his kingdom to operate. Next, David commands Joab and all the people to mourn for Abner. I think that's interesting. David tells Joab to mourn over Abner. You murdered him, now you mourn over him. That's a command of the king. And David publicly mourns his death as he publicly mourned the death of Saul and his sons. David publicly led the funeral procession. David wrote a lament to remember this day. He mourned until sundown, and all of this was to publicly demonstrate what the people knew. Look at verses 36 and 37. It's so important. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them. Verse 37. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put Abner, the son of Ner, to death. This was not the will of their king. This was murder, and it was unrighteousness. It was not simply revenge. Now, this is why we know that. Look back at the end of verse 30. One small phrase that changes the moral of the whole story. At the end of verse 30, it says this. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner. Why? Because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. There's a difference there. Asahel was killed in battle. Abner, and, Abner, uh, Abner was murdered. Asahel died in a battle. Do you get the picture? There is a difference. Asahel was killed in battle. Battle. Asahel was not murdered. It was not premeditated or planned like the murder of Abner, though there is plenty of blame to lay at Abner's feet. Now here, let me, let me close this way. For David, the ends do not justify the means. David consistently mourns over murder and unrighteousness, even though from Joab's perspective, let's be honest, he's doing David a practical favor. That also expediently allows him to get revenge for his brother's death. Seems pretty practical to me. But from David's perspective, this is not how the young kingdom is going to operate. David is seeking peace and trusting God to protect him and bring his promises about. Hear me, God doesn't need the help of revenge to do this. Sometimes believers in the church do things that do not reflect the heart of Jesus, our king, any more than Joab's actions reflected the heart of King David. And this has driven many non-believers from considering the actual claims of Christ. This is where, again, for believers, repentance and humility are so important. Now, it's always hard to understand one more point of application. As you read through this story, it's always hard to understand and plot out the consequences of our choices and actions. It's very hard, young people. It is very hard to plot out and chart 
the consequences of our choices and actions. There are always unforeseen repercussions and ramifications. Abner chose to disobey the revealed will of God regarding David. Abner chose to anoint Ishbosheth and divide Israel. Abner chose to initiate a conflict with Judah. Abner chose to have the young men compete. These decisions led him to killing Asahel in a battle, Joab and Abishai's brother. He chose to plot against his own king and even use a convenient theological justification that just didn't happen to be convenient earlier in the story. And all of this puts him right back in front of Joab and Abishai who did to him what he knew would happen all along. And Joab and Abishai are not praised for seeking revenge. No, even what they did subverts the kingdom that David is seeking. Here's the point. Here's where you can say a big amen. Sin complicates everything. You can't foresee what your sin will bring about in your life. You can't. You might think you can play with it and get away with it. You can't foresee the down-the-road ramifications. We would be foolish to think any person or group of persons can and will always do what is right and good to usher in God's kingdom. God's kingdom can only come through the rule and reign of Jesus in the hearts of his people until the day comes and he puts away all sin and reigns as king himself. Though we are all tempted, hear me, you must never justify sin. Never use the ends justify the means. That is not true. If you cheat in your business, lie to your spouse, break your word, even if you think you have a good reason, it will end horribly. Maybe not today or tomorrow, but someday, you will reap what you sow. Always. Listen, living righteously is hard. Amen. Living righteously is hard, and it, may not, and it may not even look like holiness is profitable to you, but in the end, it is always the best to honor God and obey His Word. We have to trust God and believe that and live that way, or else you're buying into the old lie of sin that God doesn't know what's best, God doesn't love us, and His promises will fail. But the gospel demonstrates that the opposite is true. The opposite is true. In Christ's kingdom, the first will be last, the last will be first. Those who wish to be great must humble themselves and be the servants of all. The way of the cross is the way of self-denial, self-sacrifice, and holiness. The ends never justify the means. Take that to heart. And if you're caught up in sin, the only way out is repentance. Repent, own it, have a little humility, and return to Jesus, that is what we're all called to do. May the Lord add a blessing to the preaching of his word. I want to pray for us. Father, I ask that now you would speak to our hearts as we've tackled such a big, long section of scripture. And Father, we pray that in our lives, Father, we, though we are all as broken as Abner, as broken as Joab, as broken as David, Father, our desire is that in our lives we would live in a way that upholds your promise, your goodness, your grace, and the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is worth following and he has paid it all for us. So we don't need to manipulate, we don't need to go about it our own way, that we can rest in the sovereign hand of God in our lives, trusting that you will bring about your purposes. And when we do fail, oh God, I'm thankful that there is mercy forever in the arms of Jesus for those that cling tightly to him. 
for those that cast our cares upon him, for those that are quick to repent of their sins and turn and follow him, for those that take up their cross by faith and walk after Christ. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.